This is a Sandy Boy Productions podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome to I'll Have Another Podcast with Lindsay Hine. I'm your host, Lindsay, and I'm so grateful you are here today. Uh, Happy New Year. Excited for this next episode. Today's episode is supported by Lagoon. Wow. If you are looking for an amazing pillow, you got to check out Lagoon Sleep. I struggled for years to find a pillow that I was satisfied with and not just satisfied with, but loved. And I am so thrilled that I found Lagoon. You go to their website, lagoonsleep.com slash Lindsay and take a two minute quiz that is super simple and it matches you with the perfect Lagoon pillow for you. I was matched with the Fox. Anybody else a Fox? Uh, My husband is an otter and we both love our pillows so, so much. Uh, We all know that Having better performance comes when we optimize our sleep and we have better recovery and we prioritize that. And there's no better way to do that than having a kick butt pillow. So go check them out and let me know what you think. Lagoonsleep.com slash Lindsay, L-I-N-D-S-E-Y. Use the code Lindsay, L-I-N-D-S-E-Y for 15% off your first purchase. All right, friends, this guest today I'm so excited about. This is long overdue. I'm so honored to have Lauren Fleshman on the podcast. Can't believe this is her first time on the show, and it was a joy to talk to her. Uh, Lauren's new book, Good for a Girl, is out now, so if you have not picked up a copy yet, please go do that. Uh, Lauren's one of those people who has had such a big career in running, in entrepreneurship, in coaching, so many things that Lauren has done. And in her book, she goes through it all. I mean, I knew I wanted to read her book from the time I heard her announce she was writing a book. I don't know how long ago it was, maybe like two years. It was a while. Um, And so I was really excited about it. But I was so drawn into this book. I could not put it down. Uh, There's so much about her story that I did not know. Um, I knew that Lauren has always been a great voice for women in sport, but I didn't know to the extent of all the things that she did when she ran for Nike and all the ways she stood up for what she knew and thought was right. Lauren ran for Stanford. She was a five-time NCAA champion. She was a 15-time All-American. Lauren went on to run professional for Nike. She won two USA championships. She was also on five world championship teams. Lauren's career had a lot of ups and downs and I asked her in this episode, like, how does your career, your running career settle with you now? Like when you look back, how do you feel about your running career? And I love what she had to say about that. Uh, She's an entrepreneur through and through, founder of Picky Bars, hosts her own running retreats, also the co-author of the very popular Believe Training Journal. And I don't know about you all, but I've known about Lauren since 2009 when she wrote that blog, Ask Lauren Fleshman. That was so long ago. Uh, Anyway, I am so honored to have her on the show and really loved getting to know her. And you got to go pick up her book, Good for a Girl. All right, friends, if you enjoy this episode, please leave us a rating and review on iTunes. Uh, When you do that, you are entered to win a pair of Gooder sunglasses. So go do it. Thank you so much and enjoy my conversation with Lauren Fleshman. All right. Today on the podcast, 
so excited to welcome Lauren Fleshman to the show. Welcome to the show, Lauren. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Long overdue. I can't believe I've been doing this podcast for six years and I've never <laughs> had you on the show. I'm so happy you're here. Yeah, you really made me work for it. I had to write an entire book. <laughs> <laughs> I loved your book. Loved mm. it. Well, that's good. <laughs> I don't know if it wasn't what I was expecting it to be, but I was so drawn into your writing and particularly your relationship with your dad and going all the way back to the early beginnings of your running. Um, I think I resonated a lot with that relationship in particular. And yeah. I just I just ate it up. Oh, that's good. Yeah, I think um, I've heard a lot that people, it's different than they expected. So I'm like, <laughs> I wonder what people expected. But um, <laughs> I guess that's the thing. If you have a lot of writing in the world and people know a fair bit about you already, then there will be expectations. So, um, but I think that I'm happy with how it turned out. It was quite a process to write. And I hope that it gets people reflecting and thinking on their own athletic experiences and I'm curious like what it got you thinking about besides your you know childhood stuff well you know it's interesting because when as I was it's whatever I'm reading in the moment I tend to reflect on that in interviews that I'm doing so I was in the middle of reading your book and then after your book I interviewed like Ellie Hennis and Paige Stoner and these women who are quite a bit younger than you and I. And I immediately just wanted to ask them a million questions about their experience with mm. body image and things like that in the NCAA system. And it pulled a lot out. Like I know that the body image thing and the, um, the way that women process their body changing and things like that, like I know that's a big deal but sometimes it gets forgotten about and your book really brought that to the forefront of my mind. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that was one thing I wanted to do was a lot of the like struggles that girls face with their changing bodies. Um, it's like, it's so common. It becomes invisible, mm -hmm. you know, it's just like static, but it has so many, um, it leaves so many ripples for us and in, in like our lives and watching each other grow and develop, you know, we're, we're, when you're trying to make it through the world as a teenager, a lot of it's your own experience, but you're also looking around at your peers to see what works, what doesn't, who do you want to be? Who do you not want to be? What do you hope happens to you? What do you not hope happens to you? And going through these massive shifts in our, in our bodies during that time is it's, it's like, it deserves some page space and it deserves some thought. You know, when I was reading it, I was thinking, when I think of you, I think of like tough, resilient, maybe that's not something that would have touched you, you mm -hmm. know? And I wonder if you got that feeling from other people throughout your career and particularly when you were younger, since you were, you know, as you talk about in the book, like one of the girls eating the hamburger, you know, like not, yeah, and almost like in a way to prove that it was okay to do it. Yeah, I felt like um, a lot of pressure sometimes to continue on this path that felt healthy and balanced. Like the more noise was happening around me and the more disorder was happening around me, eventually it had me doubting as well. And I think that the way I wanted to tell the story was to show that that you your 
you're always in this struggle in life, I think, of finding yourself and losing yourself and finding yourself and losing yourself. And we come across events in life or people in life that pull us away from ourselves, or we find ourselves down a career path that does that or in a relationship that does that, um, or a mental health issue that does that. So that force in girls sports has has a lot to do just with our fundamental body experiences and it did it did eventually worm its way in like that self-doubt that maybe I don't have the right body maybe I shouldn't eat the cheeseburger you know that kind of thing and and I've heard from people who've read the book that it was hard to read Mm. hard to watch the person who is like strong and resilient in quotes right like that kind of has the shield where these things aren't getting through it. They're bouncing off, they're bouncing off. And then all of a sudden it starts to get through and you're like, no, (laughs) not you. (laughs) Yeah, You were supposed to be the untouchable one. (laughs) Well, yeah. But then you're in our culture, we make out people like me to be the exception. Like instead of looking at me in college and saying, Oh, there's proof that we can do this healthy. It was like, wow, Lauren's just a freak we can't do this healthy. Lauren's just a freak. Mm-hmm. And, and then people taking it to the next level after that, which still happens. I see it happening with the young pros that come up. If they have like a body that isn't 0% body fat and resemble anything of like a adolescent, an adolescent body type. It's like, oh, imagine how much faster they'd be if they lost weight or when they lean out or whatever kind of lingo people use instead. And we, we should be doing the opposite. Like, look at this. We may have been wrong that you have to look one specific way to be excellent and then acknowledging just how much harm that attitude causes. Like what's the biggest thing that can change, like that can help women going through that? Well, I think we have to have this just fundamental shift that the rules that apply to men's sports Mm. don't all necessarily apply to women's sports. Um, And the, it's understandable that we would have been kind of tossed into the sports system 50 years ago. And we would assume that the ones that had all the knowledge and were doing it the best way were men and that their coaching practices for men and boys were the best ones to apply to us. And it's, you can see how it's tempting to think that like, why should we need anything different? Why should any different rules apply? And then when you look at scientific research and female bodies are almost never included in them at all, you can't blame coaches or physiologists even for looking at the quote data and being like, yeah, well, this, this, this physiology study applies to everyone. Um, Body fat or race weight is a, is a valid thing that people should be worried about. I'm like, okay, race weight for a female body, we're fluctuating on the daily. Like that doesn't even make any sense. Um, All you're doing is creating a fixation, like a thing that can distract us from our confidence on the day. So like, I think just figuring out, acknowledging that there's differences and then respecting those differences. And when it comes to body type, I just think we have a much broader range of what we can look like and be excellent. And it's more individual. It's like what works for this person, their DNA, their genetics, um, more often than not trying to lose those few extra pounds is going to hurt them way more than it's going to help them. And why, why don't we just culturally stop before (laughs) pushing people there? They lose time. They lose years. It's just so unnecessary. It seems like you had a pretty healthy experience, though, with your coaches. I did. Yeah, I did have a pretty healthy experience. And I think that like some of that I was protected because I was a late bloomer. Mm. So um, and I happened to develop in a way that was 
that caused not too many waves, right? Like I did have um, a sophomore slump and I felt the big changes in my body at that time when most that was in college and a lot of people are feeling that as sophomores in high school. Mm-hmm. So it, it took me just a longer time to get there. And then once I did though, I, I was fortunate, like I was in healthy environments for the most part, there was still dysfunction and harm and pain happening even in those environments. But overall, I I felt like I picked good programs to be in and that people were doing the best they could with the information they had at the time and were the kind of people who, when given new information, would or will change what they do. Yeah. Um, not to bring up something too hot topic, but like that Mark Wetmore uh, article going around recently, um, it's kind of like what coaches were given at the time and what they did with it versus like what they know now and what they do with it now. It's like no better, do better. And mm-hmm. almost like come face to face with like the things that you didn't do well in the past. That's really hard to do, but it doesn't mean that coaches that made mistakes in the past can't do it right now. Absolutely. How, of course we made mistakes. Like, and I hope that's something that my book makes clear is that this is all part of a system. It's all part of a system that has norms and best practices and things that have been handed down to us. And we like, pass it on to the next generation. And that, that's the default. And like you said, you can only change that. If you know better, then you can do better. And I don't believe in being, I believe there's very few coaches out there who are truly like you know, pieces of crap who need to be removed. I think that if they can't look at their behavior and, and they're not willing to recognize the harm they caused and make changes, then they need to be removed as well. But I think that like almost all of them are just people doing the best they can that are passionate about the sport and passionate about doing right by their athletes and would behave differently if they knew better. Um, but it is, it's really difficult to face information like that and be humble in the face of it. And we also don't have like a very great culture at letting people make mistakes and apologize for them and like move on, which is unfortunate. But for the changes to happen in sports for women and girls, it's going to require that all of us look at our behavior in the past and realize the ways we may have contributed to these problems so that we can change that and then collectively change that. That makes a huge difference. It'll be more of a difference than any policy changes that can be made. Isn't that the truth too? It's sometimes almost scary to like weigh in on something because something you weigh in on and believe in right now in three years, you and I might have a totally different opinion than we have right now. And if you put your voice out there publicly, it almost like pegs you to this one stance. Yeah. And we're allowed to grow and change. We should be growing and changing. (laughs) Yeah. And then you become afraid to say anything. Um, I think that that I've, I've read a lot of things about that. of Like we need to create a a space, especially in activism Mm -hmm. advocacy for learning on the fly Mm -hmm. like that we all we have to meet people where they are we really need to consider intention and then like yeah like learn how to apologize (laughs) um accept apologies um have constructive conversations and move forward and it harms all of us if we can't do that for other people then we can't then we're too afraid to put ourselves out there and make a mistake too and then nobody's actually doing anything so um so nothing changes it's like not only accepting that change, but like celebrating it. Like, 
oh, like I see where, what I said here and like this is what I think now and I'm so glad I I got to learn all those things in those years. Um, yeah. It can be humbling though. Yeah, especially now that we all of our thoughts and feelings are recorded for <laughs> forever on the internet. Um, one of the things that this coaching conversation is really making me think about is parenting. Man, mm. and your book talks a lot about like, you know, the generation of parenting when we you and I were growing up versus versus now even I think about this and I have a podcast for parents as well called Why is Everyone Yelling and um, <laughs> you've never said that, right? <laughs> no, definitely. Um, but the lady I was talking to yesterday, like we were talking about this, like adult parents having relationships with their adult parents and just like how we do things so much differently in parenting now, but that's not mm. to say we're like angry or like we thought our parents were the worst parents ever. It's like the coaching thing. It's like they were doing the best they could with the resources they had. Um, I'm curious yeah. with your parenting, like, what are your feelings on that? Uh, well, I'm I'm trying to do the same thing you said, like just take in the new information and try to incorporate it the best that I can. But also just knowing that the pattern will continue, like there will be some fallout for this generation of what we think we truly believe are these revolutionary new ways of doing things and it won't show up until they're in their twenties and their employers are writing articles <laughs> complaining about them. <laughs> and then they will feel like they want to do that dramatically different for their kids. We just don't, we just don't know. So I think it's really like you and my mom and I have had conversations like this, like the book has definitely brought up things in our relationship where she has struggled with some feelings of like, I was doing my best. Mm it's clear that this was not ideal for you mm -hmm. in some ways. Um, but I don't have any ill will. I don't have any negative feelings about it. I truly think that like, that's something I tried to do in the book in general was to, to see the whole person as, as much as I could and um, acknowledge the complexity of relationships, the complexity of people and nobody's good or bad, um, including me in the book. So uh, yeah, as a parent, I just try to, I think the big difference from my childhood in the book to now is trying to be aware of like my kids having their own motivations for things. And I do a lot of focus on like emotional intelligence and speaking to them about their feelings, getting them to acknowledge their feelings, feeling safe talking about them. Is that something that it's not that my parents didn't do that because I feel like it was it was not a hostile environment to feelings for, for to my feelings. But when you have alcoholism and volatility in a home, you also learn that feelings that other people's feelings can be big and unpredictable and harmful and that you don't know when they're going to happen and they can hijack an entire room or an entire family, ruin a vacation, ruin a whatever. And so yeah, like my task as an adult has been learning to trust other people's feelings. That's been harder for me than trusting my own feelings. Yeah. When I read it, I was thinking about that because and then, you know, when you read someone else's, you call it a memoir. Yeah. Yeah. You think about like the things you would write about your own life. And I was mm -hmm. thinking, and when I read the book, I couldn't remember if your dad had already passed or not until I read it in the book. And, um, 
I was thinking, oh my gosh, I, I feel like I would be really anxious to write these things because I don't want to hurt my dad's feelings. And, um, I also have a dad who has an alcohol, um, addiction. He is still alive. Um, but there, there's just so many similarities to the things that you talked about. And, um, I don't know. I just wonder how you felt like putting that all out there. And you mentioned your mom's feelings on it too. And that must've been scary. It was scary for sure. It was like, there was a lot of wrestling with what needs to be in the book and why. And I don't want to tell any stories that don't need to be in the book, but if they like seriously impacted the way I see the world, the way I see myself, um, or they, they prompted a, a big change in my life or like a, like they directed me in a different way. Like I, it needed to be in there. And the relationship with my dad was fundamental to, to everything really like everything. Um, and I don't, I couldn't have written the book if he was alive still. Mm. And I think that that's having read books about writing memoir that is a, it's a sad truth, but like some of our most painful stories that impact us the most, we can't tell them because of, because of hurting people. And I, and I'm still, well, we all, all people writing a book hurt people. Yeah. It's just like part of the deal. So you, but we also have to figure out how, how and why to tell our stories anyway, because they did happen to us. And I felt very convicted with the bigger picture of this book, that it was important to tell that. And those gender dynamics, um, seeing yourself through the eyes of men, some in a lot of our culture that, you don't even notice it's happening because it's everywhere. But in my story in the home, it was a way to show it very clearly that then could be, could make it easier to see how that same dynamic plays out systemically um, or with a coach or with a marketing um, director who's in charge of sponsorship or whatever. I'm curious about your, your relationship with alcohol. Oh yeah, man. I mean, I was like terrified of alcohol. Yeah. <laughs> I do drink sometimes, you know, like, yeah. but I, I'm, I, um, I didn't drink before I was 21, except for like one sip of sherry <laughs> that was in the fridge with my best friend. I had a, like, I was definitely afraid that it would turn me into like a Jekyll and Hyde person that I wouldn't be able to have control around it. And I viewed substances in general as something that would like, could like steal me away from myself that it would I would lose my power I'd lose my I would lose control mm-hmm. and there's a lot of bipolar disorder in my family like not my mom or dad but like aunts uncles grandparents like there's a, a very strong genetic predisposition and and my mom told me when I was young like she said alcohol abuse drug abuse um, high levels of stress lack of sleep like these are the main triggers when you have a genetic predisposition to something like that um, and uh, certainly if I had developed bipolar disorder or if I do one day, I would work with it and, and it wouldn't be the end of the world, obviously, if people live with it all the time. But as a child, that was really impactful to me because I, I saw and was very confused by some of the most extreme manifestations of of the illness and the behaviors and uh, things that were going on that were like very confusing. So I had a a fear that I think was actually like an unhealthy fear. Mm. (laughs) Now that I look back, like a very extreme fear of losing control of my mind, my body. And so I was very square. (laughs) (laughs) How about you? (laughs) Did you go the other way? Um, (laughs) Yeah. I mean, 
I think I don't I think once we started having kids, I started drinking a little bit more. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. <laughs> In the evenings. I mean, I had a pretty normal like high school and college experience with alcohol. Like I definitely drank and but I I wasn't like a controlling factor in my life or anything. But the older I get and the more I started drinking on a regular basis in the evenings once we had kids, you know, five o'clock, I'm waiting for my husband to get home. I'm going crazy, like, mm-hmm. oh, I have a glass of wine with my neighbor. Yeah, yeah. Um, it started to like I started to really feel uncomfortable with it. Like, this is too much of a crutch. Um, I yeah. know I'm okay without it, but I'm leaning on it a little bit too much. And so mm-hmm. um, that's something I've actually been working on a lot. Um, but it's hard, you know, it's hard. And especially when addiction runs in your family and you are like, man, I could see this really like having a hold on me. Yeah. Yeah. That idea of like, why am I need like during the pandemic yes. with two kids at home, I definitely had moments of like, wow, I seem really excited for five o'clock. Yeah. Like I'm spending a lot of time in the beer aisle picking out particular kinds of beer. <laughs> yeah. Or like I would spend too much of my day wondering, like, should I just skip it today? And like, I, why am I ruminating on this so much? Like, I just, yeah. I, I don't want this to be taking up brain space. So a lot of times what I'll do now, like last night, for instance, um, I just, I was like, okay, this would be the time where I would want uh, to have a drink. And so I went on a walk instead. And what I begged my oldest, who's 10 now, um, to come with me. I was like, please come on a walk with me. And he did. And it was <laughs> wonderful. Uh, but that's, if I go move my body instead, that seems to be the, the helpful. And usually I've run or exercised earlier in the day. So I'm like done working out for the day, you know? Yeah. Yeah. All right, friends. Are you joining me in just a couple weeks in Jacksonville, Florida, February 3rd through 5th on the beaches of Jacksonville, This is such a fun race, the Donna Marathon Weekend. It supports breast cancer patients and research, and they have a 5K, a half marathon, and a marathon. I'm having a meetup, shakeout run, a meetup at a restaurant, and we are going to have so much fun. I go to this race every single year, and it is so meaningful to me. Love meeting people at this race every year, and I really hope that you will come join us. Come join us. Kick off your spring training season with this half marathon and just see like where your fitness is, where you're at. I love it. It's a flat, fast course. Um, and you can sign up for 10% off when you go to breastcancermarathon.com and use the code Lindsay, L-I-N-D-S-E-Y-1-0 for 10% off. Uh, all right, friends, enjoy the rest of the show. Um, but I do want to bring up anxiety and depression because you, your post, I don't know when you wrote this. It was probably a few months ago or maybe even longer than that about your depression and, you know, reading that book with your daughter and looking back on that time and all those months that went by that you read the book and it didn't even like, it didn't even feel real to you. And I, I try to explain this to my husband all the time. And then by the way, I went and listened to in preparation for this, one of your episodes with Jesse on your podcast, um, where you guys talked about this. And at the end of the conversation, you guys talk about the things he does to support you. Um, and I've tried to explain this to my husband so many times that when I'm going through a very deeply anxious and depressive episode, like I don't even feel like I exist in the world. Like I feel like I am like 
I'm not even here. It is the hardest thing to explain when you're not in it. And Mm -hmm. right now that I'm not in it, I can't even imagine what that feels like. But in that moment, I can't imagine what this feels like. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. Oh my gosh. (laughs) It's so much. So I'm just curious, like, where are you with that? And, um, what does life look like in regards to that right now? My mental health is a lot better than it has been in a long time, but I still don't feel really robust. Um, like the idea of a book tour mm. and traveling around and really like leaning into to that side of things creates a lot of anxiety in me. I generally need to rest after I've been around a lot of people. And I, I, I guess, but overall, it's, it's moving in the right direction. I think that I'm not alone in that. I think even just post pandemic, people are experiencing some degree of that. And um, I'm definitely still on Wellbutrin. Mm-hmm. I still have a therapist that I work with and talk to regularly. I find that very helpful. And I'm glad I had the experience because I have a greater understanding of how seriously to take the lows. I won't, I don't think I will be flippant about it. Um, if it starts to happen again, which it has, I've had times where it starts to, I start to notice certain things and I know to talk to my therapists right away. And, and I don't know, like, I don't know where I'll end up, but if this is as good as it gets, that's going to be okay. Like Mm. it's, it's it's 90% is it like, that's cool. Um, I mentioned earlier, like when I read your book that whatever I'm doing in that moment is what I end up talking about on the podcast a lot. So (laughs) I apologize if this is so focused on this topic, but, um, because I actually just started taking Zoloft about three, four weeks ago. Because mm-hmm. I kind of like just came to a head where I, I've been prescribed it probably six times and I've never taken it because I've been so fearful, like so scared mm-hmm. of the side effects. Like talk mm-hmm. about giving an anxious person <laughs> who is anxious about really, and if I'm being honest, death, um, a list of things that are like, you might hallucinate if you take this. (laughs) Yeah. Um, but I finally took it. I like took it and I was like, you know, I just cried so much because I'm like, okay, I'm doing, I'm doing this step. And I started doing therapy as well. Um, so this is all very like personal to me hearing you talk about it as well. And I wonder like we're, but I'm about to hit 40. You just, you're a little bit Mm -hmm. over 40. I'm like, how much of this is age? Like, I don't actually yeah. know, but like where we are in that season of life with our kids too. Like you're, de- if you're done mm-hmm. with babies and you're like, I don't know, it's such a weird time. Yeah. I don't know. I, I'm, I wouldn't be surprised if we would be having like a similar mental experience. If we were hunter gatherers living in mm-hmm. the wild, um, that that's just, is just part of age. I do think that there are times of life where we do, an audit uh, and like reprogram things based on like life experience, whatever hormonal state we're in at that stage of life, visible signs of aging, who like being the age of people that we have thought of that age, meaning something mm-hmm. else. And then we're now we're that age and just having to like reckon with some of the ways that's the dif- different or the same um, becoming your parents in certain ways where you're like, Oh shit, like that kind <laughs> of stuff. Right. So I think there's, to be fair, there's just a lot happening. And um, I think that needing some chemical support is probably pretty expected when you consider like the world we live in and the pace that things are. This is not a a natural environment by any means. Um, So I I think that I've removed 
I've removed for myself the stigma around taking pharmaceutical drugs to help with mental health. Um, but I also have, I'm a person that has not experienced a lot of side effects. So mm. the, the trade-offs feel worth it to me. And then I had a friend when I had a lot of resistance to taking my antidepressants at first, like Zoloft wasn't a, a great fit for me. That was the first one I tried. And then I went to Wellbutrin, but I know Zoloft works really well for a lot of my friends. Um, it was because I was like, once I do this, there's no turning back. Mm-hmm. And my friend was like, that's not true. If it doesn't work, you don't have to keep taking it. If it like, it's not like permanently changing your brain. And now there's no going back. And I was like, oh, good point. I can just do something else. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I I felt the same way. I was scared because I was like, well, I don't want to have to be on this for the rest of my life. And I really just felt like I was at a crossroads. I was like, I I have to try everything I can try. I started therapy. Like I was like, I, I just, I have to go all in because I felt like I had no other option. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when you see it affecting your kids, like that was a big motivator for me when my son was like caretaking me mm-hmm. and bringing me coffee. And it wasn't just like to do something kind. It, he was genuinely worried about his mom and that's okay now and then but when it's like months on end I'm like and if I have this prescription sitting there and I'm not taking it and here's my kids behavior right in front of me being impacted every single day by this like I have to I have to do something yeah I resonated a lot with um you and Jesse talking about that and because I resonated with like the days that you you check out like you're not just checking out you're like just not there and how much of that parental load which is already mm-hmm. heavy is on them even more. And you're just like, I want, I want to do everything, but like I physically and emotionally feel like I literally can't show up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's very humbling. <laughs> it's very humbling. Good partners we have though. We do. Very thankful for them. Um, okay. We'll switch directions here a little bit. Uh, let's talk about coaching. Are you still coaching? I'm on a coaching sabbatical right now. So I'm, one of the things that I'm going to be doing in the 2023 year is figuring out what why, what my future plans are for that, basically. Okay. I knew you had taken a sabbatical and I wasn't sure that if you were back into it. No. Yeah, I, I took it and it was, um, it was something I was reluctant to do because I do love coaching, but it was like a thing that I was not doing right by my athletes if I continued to coach them while so compromised in my mental and emotional health. And, um, and so it was like a thing that, and it's, it's interesting because as much as I absolutely loved coaching and love my athletes, like I, I haven't really missed it yet Mm. very often because I think I just still don't have the capacity to bring that back into my life. So it doesn't sound appealing to do so. Um, I, like I said, without feeling super robust, Yet to take on other people's hopes and dreams and emotional states and coach at the level that I would want to coach elite athletes, I'm not in a place to do it. I could probably coach middle school once a week at this point. That would be fun. (laughs) Yeah, I do think that I'll probably get involved in youth sports in some way. Um, Isn't that interesting? We talked about culture a little bit earlier, but just the fact that we see people doing so many things. And then I, I posted about this the other day. Like, I'm always like, how do these like very high level people function every day? I, I think about like 
the president or, you know, like someone running Mm -hmm. a big hospital or something like that. I'm like, how do they literally show up every single day? Are there never days where they just want to like crawl in bed and not get out? And I think that our society and culture puts this expectation on us that we should also be doing all the things. And it's actually normal and healthy to not do all the things, but it's hard to accept sometimes. It is. And you don't know what's really happening with those high functioning people doing all those things. Like they, they may be six months away from a mental health break or like having deep conversations with themselves about how burnt out they are um, or how, how much like support that they get or require in order to, to do that. A lot of times people have a whole team behind them that is making their life a little bit more sustainable. So it's similar to bodies. Like you see someone who has a body that looks fit and healthy and whatever, but you don't really know mm-hmm. if they're healthy or not. You can't tell health from looking at someone or from a scale. Like they may be suffering in silence. They may have osteoporosis. Um, you just, you don't know. So it's like a danger to kind of look at other people and, and compare it to yourself all the time. That's so true. One of the hardest things for me is like scheduling the doctor's appointment. you like just mm-hmm. picking up the phone and doing it. And you're right. These people, their people are scheduling their appointments for them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you don't have a person scheduling your appointment with the person that's helping that person. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I want to dig into your writing a little bit more too. When did writing Great. find you? Um. Well, I entered writing contests in elementary school. We always had like a contest for each grade and one story would be hardbound and a copy would go in the elementary school library and a copy got to go home with you. And so I entered those every year. I think I won two of the years uh, for my grade. And it was really like, I had an aunt, I have an aunt um, who is an English teacher and or was an English teacher and is, um, was very encouraging. She was always buying me journals. And when I would have sleepovers in Santa Monica at her house, she would get me to write about things like writing prompts and trying to make mm-hmm. it fun. And I remember like not loving it a lot of the time, like kind of being like, Ugh, do we have to write? <laughs> um, but she normalized it in a way where I did end up taking the journals home and keeping a diary. And then it wasn't until I started blogging that I realized how powerful writing is for claiming your own story. And especially for female athletes who only get 5% or whatever of the sports media coverage in order to have your story told. Well, first of all, you have to have your story told so you can get paid because if nobody's telling your story. Nobody, no brand will invest in you. So you need to have a story. Um, but then you have to wait around for sports media to decide you have a story worth telling and only 5% of the pages and articles will be dedicated to your entire sex. So what what's that going to be? And then if only something like, of the journalists and sports editors are women. You have to be appealing to a male sports reporter and male sports editor. Um, And I think that those are just some of the factors that continue to feed the cycle of women's sports being underrepresented, underreported on, underinvested in. But social media and blogging is like a massive tool for us to tell our own stories. As athletes, advocates, like outside the sports world, it's huge. Um, It's also a cesspool and a place where you get abused regularly. But I found that I loved writing blogs and being being the editor and decider of which stories are worth telling, what people might be interested in, um, what's of value. 
and then tinkering with that and playing with it over time and seeing being surprised sometimes at the parts of an elite athlete life that would resonate with um, recreational runners that picked up running in their 40s for the first time, like things like that, where I'd be like, oh, wow, yeah, that does that does have like an undercurrent that resonates. Um, and I really enjoyed that as I was, as my writing was connecting me to people who weren't elite athletes and it, it gave me this optimism about the day that I would transition out of elite sport, mm-hmm. that there was so, still so much passion in the sport of running, um, waiting for me, like in the recreational world that I would inevitably move into. And so it just kind of gave me a little bit of like, um, context for where my horse blinders world where it fit in the bigger picture of sports and the running community um, and I, I think if you have enough positive experiences with writing like that it just can become more a part of your life yeah your blog ask Lauren Fleshman like that was like you were like early days I mean that was when mm-hmm. that was really when blogging was starting to blow up that was the thing mm-hmm. um, I think we're yeah. seeing it trend to go back to blogging a little bit more yeah pretty much and you're like isn't that basically what Substack is you can call it other things but it's essentially a blog totally (laughs) but that I mean you kind of were on the like beginning trend of people writing their own story and Mm -hmm. I I mean I always use Steph Bruce as an example with like her Instagram and how she Mm -hmm. has really taken control of like what her career looks like and what the story is of her life and sharing that with everybody. And, um, it's been so beautiful to watch that. I'm curious what you think, like how the landscape has changed in that regard from when you first started doing it and like, what was it? 2009? Yeah. Yeah. I think that, um, when people don't blog as much, you use Instagram as a micro blogging tool or Twitter. Um, some people are blogging and I think that, I think that um, even if I hadn't done it in 2009, 10, 11, 12 athletes would have figured it out and done it on their own anyway. But I, I do feel, and I have heard many times from other athletes that, that reading my blog helped influence them and give them the courage to do it. Cause there's like, I remember wrestling with this feeling of like, Oh, how important do I think I am that I need to have a blog and write my story. Right. Is it self-centered? whatever. And then Jesse, I remember telling me, he's just like, people are going to opt in or opt out. Mm. Like there's no harm in telling your story. And if someone doesn't like it, they don't need to read it. If someone has a problem with it, then they shouldn't read it. Um, and the, your audience will self-select and presumably if they're following, they, they're getting something out of it. And I always tried to think about that. It was like, I want the people who are choosing and self-selecting to get something out of this. I love that feeling as a reader, when a writer puts something a certain way and you're like, ah, that's, I have felt that I didn't know how to say that, Mm -hmm. but that is, that helps me understand an experience. And so I like doing that too. I like being a person that can use the writing skill to do that. And so it did, it felt like a good, like a, I'd still have moments of self-consciousness that who do I think I am? And then I'm like, well, whatever people blog all the time. Like I'll just do it. Yeah, sometimes it feels like, and I don't write much, but when I do write a very like vomit-esque mm. <laughs> post yeah. where I'm throwing it all out there, sometimes I get the feeling of like, am I giving too much away? Like, do mm. all these people need to know all these things about me? But there's a therapeutic response because you feel connection with the community that says exactly what you just said. I felt that, but I did not know how to 
regurgitate it. Like I, how I felt when you exactly described reading that book with your daughter, it's like, oh my gosh, someone else has had that out of body feeling, but I just didn't know how to say it. Yeah. And then it can help you understand when you're well and unwell, like little cues that can show you those clues that you maybe missed the first time. And you're like, oh, this is a way I can, when I'm like autopilot reading for months on end, <laughs> things are probably not right <laughs> to do something. I mean, a lot of parenting is, is autopilot anyway. Let's just be honest. Like it's just so much, but if you can, if you can't tap into the joy or mirror the joy of a child for long periods of time, there's, there's probably something out of balance. Oh yeah. The, the autopilot. It's so funny this morning I was brushing my teeth and my big three were out the door and I was still getting my youngest one out. And I was like, I don't want to mess with like brushing his teeth or making him do that and that struggle. But then I was like, okay, Lindsay, like his teeth are just as important as your teeth. (laughs) Make the kid brush his teeth. You would never not brush your teeth. But I'll tell you, the <laughs> autopilot does skip it sometimes. It it does. It does. Like the, the, It's amazing how we question like how important something is because we're just too tired to do it. <laughs> this episode of the podcast is supported by Athletic Greens. And I got to tell you, I am hooked on Athletic Greens. I have been hearing about AG1 forever. That is the Athletic Greens product that is filled with with 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced nutrients in one convenient daily serving. You just put one scoop in, shake it up with eight ounces of water, start your day with it, get your energy going, and it will have you feeling balanced and supported, both your immune system, your digestive system. It has prebiotics, probiotics to help with your gut health, and it also provides metabolism, energy, and stress support. I wake up in the morning, I go straight to my cabinet to get my athletic greens, start my day like that. I love starting the day with a healthy habit, putting this nutrient dense product into my body. I'm telling you, you gotta try it. They have a 60 day money back guarantee. And when you go to athleticgreens.com slash Lindsay, L-I-N-D-S-E-Y, you will get a free one year supply of vitamin D3 and K2 and five travel packs. You're going to want those travel packs. It helps because you feel like, oh, I'm starting the day the same way I do at home, even when I'm on the go. And plus, when you're traveling, you might not get the nutrient-dense meals that you get at home. So it's that extra security blanket there as well. Like, you know you're getting those 75 vitamins and minerals in when you take your AG1 in the morning. Again, go to athleticgreens.com slash Lindsay, L-I-N-D-S-E-Y, and you will get that free one-year supply of vitamin D3 and K2 plus five travel packs of AG1. All right, friends, back to the show. How are you liking this phase of parenting, though? Because your kids are a little, are are they like six and eight or what are the ages? Um, Five and nine. Okay. Yeah, I like it. I mean, Zadie is, she's the five-year-old and she's become a lot easier in the last six months or so, but she's still a person with very big feelings. Uh And then I'd say our biggest parenting challenge right now is like sibling dynamics, Mm. just trying to figure out how to keep them from developing a relationship where they hate each other (laughs) because they're little kid brains. Just it's amazing the things that they say or do to each other that you're like, why, why are you doing that? How did you come up with that? That's so mean and hurtful. Yeah. Like, and why do you think you can punch him in the face when you can't punch anyone at school in the face and you can't punch me in the face? Like your sibling also is a human. Um, 
but it's, I guess that's the nature of it is like you have more than one kid. And one of the benefits of that is that they can go play and you don't need to play every single imagination game with them. But then you have two undeveloped brains trying to figure everything out together and there's going to be some shrapnel involved. <laughs> it, yeah. This morning, my seven-year-old like literally smacked the four-year-old across the face when they were eating breakfast, just because like the four-year-old did something with the dinosaur he didn't like. And I'm like, well, like, why do you think you can just smack someone across the face? But hearing you say that makes me feel normal because I'm like, I didn't teach him to smack someone across the face. But I think, I don't know why siblings just have more like physical aggression to each other than to other kids. I know they do. And I think they have, kids have so little power just in general, mm -hmm. like they're on our schedule and our rules and, and whatever. And with each other, they act out their power and they try to claim their power in relation to each other. Like that's what I see going on with Zadie right now is she's hard on her brother. Um, but she's always been defined by having him around and she wants to be her own person. Like she won't let him cuddle with her. She's so mean sometimes. <laughs> I'm just like, oh, or he's like, I love you so much. Let me cuddle oh. you. And she's like, get away. And like punches him in the face. I'm like he did nothing except love you. But she needs to find, she needs to be her in the world. So I have to find ways to help her do that that don't involve punching. <laughs> That's my job, I guess. <laughs> it's so weird that they just naturally do those things. It's, yeah. it's so hard. Uh, but I Nine do... and a half is awesome. Oh, Nine isn't and a half. It fun? Oh my gosh, it's so fun. He's so thoughtful. His take on the world, like sometimes it makes my eyebrows go up like, what? But other times I'm like, yeah, you are right, actually. Like that, that's a refreshing way to think, to look at that or think about that. Yeah. yeah, I feel like nine is so beautiful because like we are pre preteen still because, um, you know, they start really pushing away and like that's totally the natural progression of life and what they do. But we're like still right before that because my oldest <laughs> is 10 as well. And the innocence is still really, really there. So just hanging on to that as, as hard as I can. Yeah. I mean, we, we've got some temper issues with, with our 10 year old, but like in general, the fact that you can have a real conversation with your child, like when we went on that walk last night, it's like talking to an, a human, like I'm, you know, like Ugh, with a brain that's so like, good, you know, it's so, so cool. Um, so you're really the Laura and you're an entrepreneur through and through, and that's an exhausting task in itself. Like, giving yourself yeah. in so many different ways. And, you know, it sounds like based on this conversation, like you're changing, like the direction of, of what you're doing with your life a little bit. I know that you guys recently, you sold picky bars. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, you're taking this long sabbatical from coaching. Like where, what do you envision for what's next for you? Uh, it's a good question. I am really, so I have, the privilege of having some financial cushion because of the sale of picky bars and then also some paychecks from the book that will come in from like when it publishes, I'll get a check and a year from now when it's paperback, I'll get a check. So there's some stability that I can buy myself some time. Um, and I don't, what I do know is that I'm not, I, I'm past the stage of my life where I want to um, focus on having a personal profile mm. and I just don't, I don't like it anymore. Like I, to, I, I, like, I don't think it's invalid. Like I totally enjoyed it for a while, but it, it, the toll of entrepreneurship based on creating your profile and like the relevant, like trying to remain relevant in a very noisy world, mm. that part of it just started to make me feel tired. 
and um, and then I was spending a lot of my life focused on this these outer rings of people that um, and not as much energy on the inner rings of people in my life and and I it's not that I didn't have friends or didn't do that but those are the relationships that's the level of relationship that feels the most rewarding and nourishing to me right now so I want to have go narrower but deeper with those people and if you followed my social media, it's already changed. Mm -hmm. Like I don't share quite as much of my personal life. I do share some things, but it, I don't, I feel less pressure to keep updating people on my life. And it's kind of like, well, if you want to follow me, you'll follow me. If you don't, you won't. Cool. Like <laughs> less attached. Um, and once this book comes out, I don't have, I'm not trying to position myself as some sort of like expert and, and I don't think there's a lot of money to be made from this situation. I wanted to come, Pile my experiences and use my writing skills to hopefully create an offering for my community that people will either find useful or not, will be motivated by or not. Um, and I'm leaving some space open in my life that in case something comes from this, like somebody else's advocacy work that I can help elevate, mm -hmm. or they, we want to work together in some way in the aftermath of this. Like that, I that I can say yes to that if I want to, and not be like so busy because I, I mean I've spent so much of my life so busy just trying to hustle and make it that any invitation I would get would create like a vomit response in my body like I could I, hadn't, I didn't have room for one more thing even when there were things that I wanted to do it was just a reminder that I didn't have time to do them and I can't I need a period of my life where I'm not living like that <laughs> so that's kind of the gift I'm giving myself this year is a little bit of space and then like when you look back at your career, because you retired, what, like five, six, five years ago? Yeah, 2016. Yeah. Like what are your feelings? Like just in your- Looking back at my career? Yeah. Like how, how does it sit with you? Oh, it's so weird. So um, having written this book was really great because you get to go over the course of your whole life <laughs> and put things in an order and- process a lot of stuff. So I'm feeling very uh, like a sense of peace around my career. And um, I'm glad I did all those things. But then I'm also like, I can't believe I did that. Like, I can't believe that was the life I lived. Like, it feels so different huh. than the life I have now. And I, I don't want to go back and do that. I, I don't really miss it. I miss being extremely fit. <laughs> and like, that feeling of like, give me any rate, anybody, put anybody on the starting line and I want to like give it to them. You know what I mean? Like that was a very powerful feeling that I don't think you get very often in life outside of sport. So, um, but I'm happy to like trade that for the other things that a little bit more calm and just spending less time. I don't, I look at that life and like, it was so optimized and everything had to be like, if you're trying to be the absolute best at something, you have to think about every aspect of your life and that's a, uh, and, and optimize it. And that, perfectionism can just bubble up and thrive in those spaces. And perfectionism is so hard on your mental health. It's not great for relationships either. So it's, I think that it's, it's good to be out of that space to, and I like, I like this version of me. This version of me is great. <laughs> did it conjure up any, like, I'm sure it did. I don't know how it wouldn't, but like, did it conjure up the heartbreak of not making an Olympic team? Like, you know, like, how did that settle with you as you had to write out those words? Yeah, it was so interesting to just see how many of those memories still held so much 
emotion in my body. Mm-hmm. And even after I finally wrote and rewrote and rewrote the book, and then it was time to record the audiobook, that as I would read it, I would have these emotional swells and have to take a break. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess that's good. Like sport left sport has left its mark on me and um, I definitely lived big and, you know, uh, had heartbreak, but um, I think that it was healing. Like a lot of times I didn't let myself feel the feelings all the way in the moment when I was going through them because I needed to, to still remain vigilant and cross train or focus on my health or sometimes just be numb working like numb through the pain or di- of disappointment of something, or I would lash out and blame other people for my pain. Um, mm-hmm. And so it's nice that in the process of writing that and reflecting, like I have done a lot of crying or feeling or whatever, and that feels healthy. And, and maybe that's part of why I feel good about my career, like really good about my career now. Just looking back, I feel like I've, I've processed it. Yeah, that blame the hurt feelings and the blame, that's such a natural human response too. We were talking about our kids earlier. I mean, the second any injustice is done to one of my kids, it's like, who's to blame? Anybody but me, right? But we do that as adults and it's so healthy to like take a step back and like evaluate those things, whether it was 10 years ago or yesterday. Like if I'm upset with my husband, it's like, or like I'm I'm hurt because of something, but I'm finding a reason to put the blame on him because he didn't mm-hmm. ask me enough questions about this or that. And yeah, yeah. Gosh, it's so important to be reflective on that. It is. And when you're a parent, I think you have a built in motivation. You don't want to you don't want to repeat cycles of harm or whatever. You want to spare them some of the the learning you had to do a lot later in life. So I think that's motivated me, to be honest. Yeah. Oh, in every aspect that motivates me. Like, what do I want my kids to see about this situation? I mean, they Mm -hmm. see me yelling plenty and, you know, doing the things that I'm not always proud of. But um, how can I how can I make them proud? Um, Lastly, with the book, though, you know, all the meetings you had with Nike and, you know, the changes that you helped make. And I wonder if you look back in those those situations to that very young woman who confidently Mm -hmm. walked into offices. And, um, you know, when I read the pages, I'm like, man, she seemed fearless. Like, what Mm -hmm. do you make of that woman now, 15 years later? I am proud of those moments. Um, But like they did, there was fear for sure in the build up to trying to speak up. There's always a lot of fear. And in the book, I, I do speak up. So I think that's the part that can be like, wow, okay, she did that. That I don't like that could be surprising or whatever. Um, but there would, my voice would be trembling. My knees would be shaking when I was doing it. And, and that's okay. I mean, that's the reality of speaking up, especially in an environment where you're not sure you're safe if you do so. Yeah. Well, I think it was beautiful. And I wonder now, and, and you said you're, after this book, like you're thinking, okay, who else might have a campaign that I want to get behind and things like that? Like, where do you see your place in all of that now? Like, I mean, you did, you spent so many years being a voice for women in this sport and you will, you will always be a voice for women in this sport, but we've talked about that shift you're having now. Like, how do you feel about where your place is in, in regards to that? I think that um, 
part of writing this book was the possibility of it being a final offering to the sport of, of like, yeah, I've done my best. I put my story together in and my knowledge in the best way that I think it can help my sport. And if I don't do anything else, if I want to become a mountain bike writer and um, write poetry about trees, <laughs> that I can go to sleep at night knowing that I did my best um, to leave the sport better than I found it, which was ever since college had been a, a thing that I wanted to do when coach Dina Evans asked us to think about our legacy in the sport that that's since then that's been important to me. So I feel like I followed through on that promise. And in the next year, as people are reading it, processing it, talking about it, um, if there's a place for me to engage, great. I'd, I'd rather not have all the spotlight really. Like there's a lot of people doing incredible work, which was how I was able to write this book. I was drawing on other people's research and leadership. There are, there are great coaches out there who are working their butts off to do it differently, even though the financial rewards aren't supporting them. Um, there's places like uh, Marie Markham and, um, and Wildwood Running that are proactively trying to create camps for young high schoolers that, you know, they have a, a virtual camp coming up in February that anyone can join. They're trying to bring all of this kind of like empowering knowledge to girls at that age that will get them through the next stage of their career with less harm. And so I want people like that to, I hope that they read this book and they feel like validated in their work and, and it gives them um, some wind under their wings because it can feel really lonely to be an advocate and to be grinding away in your little corner of it and feeling like it connects to other people's work can be a really nice feeling. Yeah, I imagine there are sometimes feelings of like people, you perceiving people to say like, oh, there she is going at it again. She's constantly talking about this again. And that must <laughs> yep, feel yep. so exhausting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of people, everybody, it, you think about like any advocate, mm -hmm. that's what they're up against because you're constantly fighting for people to pay attention, to mm -hmm. change their mind to decide it matters. Mm. Um, and when you have a, when you have news articles about young women being harmed on the Colorado team or um, sexually abused, verbally abused you, and you have, it's so easy to kind of be like, oh, there's just these bad actors. There's these individuals that if we can just pluck them out, we can solve the problem. We really just need to be better at finding them and plucking them out. But that's, I needed this book to show that we're, you're going to just end up replacing them with people who are going to make the same mistakes. And some of them are going to be really, really good people making decisions that hurt people on accident because we haven't changed the expectations. We haven't changed the systems and the norms and personal narrative can, can do that. It can make, it can touch people's hearts and minds in a way that a scientific article or news story can't. And um, hopefully by walking in someone else's shoes in a memoir, you feel like you can take your own steps afterward a little bit more easily. Mm, I love that. Last question before we wrap up with into podcast here. Uh, how did joining Wazelle change your life? It was so refreshing to see that um, a lot of the friction I experienced for the nine and a half years that I was a Nike athlete um, could just disappear when you walk into a woman-centered space. Like mm -hmm. they're not perfect, obviously, but certain things like not being shocked 
by the fact that a female might want to have a baby and still be a professional athlete. Like that is something a professional, like a CEO can understand who has had two of their kids and continues to have professional aspirations and doesn't view herself as, as having like um, phoned it in because she had babies. Right. So like in a, in this male environments, you're having to defend your basic desire fits your anatomy should you choose to do it and defend and actively like defend any perception that it might mean that you don't actually care you're not professional you just like and those things just were gone and when you have when you remove a lot of those friction points then that, that are essentially just like let me live my life can you just let me live my life <laughs> then when you, you you do still come up against some obstacles but you have energy to focus on those and those are like the real ones that are going to make like the biggest changes. Um, so there was just a lot more ease in that relationship. And it got me thinking like women centering women in a business makes certain things go so much more smoothly for the women involved centering women in the recreation of sports in women's sports, like truly centering their biology, their physiology, their needs, where they're experiencing harm different to their male peers and like creating unique solutions for that group instead of a one size fits all for, for all people, um, that maybe we could expect a similar result to what it was like it was all. Like maybe we can experience more ease, less harm, um, and better problem solving skills by people who can focus on the group at hand. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's unfortunate that our generation, the generation before us, had to be like the ones to speak up and make the change so that the people now are really receiving the benefits. I'm just thinking of pregnant athletes now like Molly Huddle and people like that, that like they're getting that they're getting that support from their sponsor that everybody always should have got from their sponsor. Well, and Mm -hmm. I don't know her details with her sponsor. I'm just, you know, generalizing. Yeah. Um, But it's just it's it's sad that there's like decades upon decades of women who had to like not get that support and then speak up for it to come to this. Yeah. And then very quickly after you've spoken up and there's a new norm, people, people forget there ever was a problem Yeah, and they can get um, lulled into thinking that things really are equal now. And I think that there's been a lot of that. Like we like to talk about title nine in this very positive, empowering way. And it is, and there's this underbelly of problems that come from, our unwillingness to really focus on the female athlete and treat them the way they need to be treated and uh, not glossing over that. Uh, What kind of fan of the sport are you now though? Like when like (laughs) world championships and Olympics and things Mm -hmm. like that are on, like, what are you most excited to watch? I have not watched the Olympics or the world championships since retiring. I've followed it on. Yeah. I've watched a couple clips actually on like Peacock or something after the fact, but, um, but I'm not like, oh, here's the schedule. I've put it into my Google calendar. Like I'm arranging my life around it. I think that having been there and done it and um, and my kind of my complex feelings around it all, like with which performances to believe. Yes. And there's just so many ways for me to spend my time. And I spent so much of my life on that. I, and I, I don't, I don't feel a pull to spend a ton of my life cheering. I think I'm more of like, a, I'm more of like a voyeur, like, <laughs> I'll look at people's accounts that are coming up through the sport and kind of just like keep a little read on the general vibe or 
there's certain individuals that I might like to check in on every now and then, but it's not, um, it's a pretty small part. I'd say the elite athlete side is a pretty small part of my life. I mean, I, I think the people I pay the most attention to are the ones that I've coached that have mm. continued to go on. I tend to follow their results. Mm. Well, Lauren, what's something professionally or personally that you'd like to do that you haven't done yet? It's a good question. Um, personally, I want to work on my music more. Mm. So I've got a keyboard and I like to play piano and I like to um, play guitar and occasionally write songs. So I think I, you will not be seeing me on Spotify, <laughs> but just for myself, that's something that has been a, a part of me since I was a kid that I, I feel like I really had to choose between music and running and it felt like an easy choice at the time for running, but music lives inside me in a way that has become very obvious to me over the course of my life that I, it needs attention. And I always feel so good when I do it. So I want to do some more of that. Is that self-taught? Like, did you know how to play piano or guitar when you were a kid? I was self-taught as a kid. We had, my grandma gave us her piano. Um, and and then my mom took me to the piano store and we picked out some of those. I don't remember, like Al Alberto's piano, or I don't remember the like lesson book. Uh -huh. And I just started working my way through them and um predictably skipped some of the parts that were boring and <laughs> were too hard. <laughs> and so I don't have the kind of complete knowledge someone who had lessons would have, but I, but I like, I can play reasonably well. And if I really put my head down, I can play some of like the, the tougher classical pieces and things like that. And now I'm more interested in um, playing chords and learning how to play more popular songs at, while singing along to them. That's been fun. Yeah. It makes me want to get my kids signed up for some sort of lesson. Do your kids do yeah. music? So I did lessons for about nine months with Jude for piano. And it was kind of heading into the pandemic. And um, he loves piano. He plays on his own. And he, he's kind of taking it at his own pace. He's not going through books and like checking pages off like I was. And I was this like crazy perfectionist person but he will hear the star wars theme song and want to learn it mm -hmm. and then sit there and learn it until he has it down or the robin hood song or whatever it is and so he has i like to see that confidence in him that he can hear something he likes he sees there's this instrument he knows that it is like a puzzle to be decoded but i, I need musical instruments mm -hmm. just in my house i don't know if you have any in, in your house yet i guess we don't really know we should you might just find if you get a keyboard um, and I recommend one with headphones <laughs> so that if you don't want to listen to it, you can idea. still go nuts. Yeah. But just, I feel so much more comfortable in homes where there is music because that's how I grew up. And I, I have noticed that for my kids, just having it around that they'll go engage with it on their own, just like they would their Legos or their stuffies or whatever. It's just, a, they view it as another toy. And, um, and then some of those natural explorations are leading somewhere for them. And I don't know, I haven't decided yet if I'm going to do try organized lessons again, because Jude just had a hard time sitting in the chair and it could have been the teacher. It could have been the pandemic, but um, they were lessons in our home too, which I don't think I would do again. I think mm -hmm. I'd go somewhere where there's less distractions and your toys aren't right next to you. But that was hard for me to watch as a parent too, of like watching him kind of like not listening very well. And then I would get anxious and I was like, Oh, this is creating tension between me and my kid. So I think I'll try to find a place where I can go, drop him off. He plays piano in a room with someone <laughs> and then I get him back and I have no idea how it went. Um, <laughs> so true. 
That's Maybe exactly that. that's exactly how I felt about speech therapy because my second my second oldest he does speak he's been doing speech for like five years but the first time they come to your house when they're under three and I was like you know what like we're just gonna hold off for six months until he's three and we can go to you because I had two other little kids and I was like I'm just not like this is too much inside my house this anxiety is not not working so I can imagine that with music like and you're like you want to like correct him so that he's respecting the teacher and yeah, exactly. I'm not like just letting the teacher handle it. And yeah, it's a lot, man. <laughs> okay. Maybe I'll do the keyboard with headphones. Yeah. Try that. It's cool. Just see how it goes. If your kids are like mine, they'll really like the demo song that mm-hmm. comes with the keyboard and want to play it full blast and pretend they're playing along. Like there's not a lot of like rigorous piano happening right now, but if they, if there's, if they don't view it as a foreign object without, that feels untouchable, then I feel like I've, I've won. Mm, yeah, that's good. Uh, who are you? I know you love Brandy Carlisle and <laughs> why can't I think of the other name? Mitchell, Joni Mitchell. Joni Mitchell. Yep. Okay. So who are your other like musical inspirations? Um, I, let's see. I mean, Linda Ronstadt, Fleetwood Mac, got some of those kind of idols along the way. Um, I think for the most part, though, it's like it's not I don't really think of it as like a musical idols. Those are probably my only two real musical idols are Joni Mitchell and Brandi Carlisle. And outside of that, I just like to make mixes of music and and use them to enjoy my running life more or my drives more. And I like a pretty wide range of music. I, I just discovered this artist. Um, I don't know if it's OG or OG. It's O-G-I. Okay. And they're incredible they've got an ep out that i just love the sound of and so it's fun to discover new to me music and like feel lit up about it and see what other music it like connects with in my life isn't it interesting when you find a new artist that you're obsessed with and you're like how have i not known about this person like when i Mm -hmm. discovered nathaniel raycliffe like a couple years ago i was like why have i not been listening to nathaniel raycliffe for like (laughs) you know, my entire existence. Like, this is amazing. Totally. And now I'm trying to remember, like, there's people obsessed with certain artists that I've never listened to. So I think, like, I'm definitely curious about, like, John Prine. How have I not become completely uh, familiar with John Prine's entire discography? Like, I should should know that. Like, he's influenced so many musicians that I like. But I just, I haven't exactly had the time to just, like, sit down and have a John Prine appreciation party. But yeah, I think it's funny how when you're younger, music is a thing that you like, it's it, like the things you like are generally what's popular for mm-hmm. most people. And it's a way to connect with people. And then as I get older, and I'm working on the craft of writing a book, and I'm developing an appreciation for people's individual nuance of what they bring to their art. It's less important if somebody's voice sounds amazing to me, or if it's like, if it's a little bit hard to listen to at first or abrasive, like I'm I'm not as focused on that as a disqualifier. I'm like, oh, this is just this person's expression. Let me appreciate it for the full art that it is. Do you guys always have music playing in your house? Yeah, pretty much. Same. Pretty much. We also find it helps with kid behavior to have some kind of quiet Mm -hmm. music playing Mm -hmm. in the background. And it keeps um, Jesse and I from... I think just being as activated by the kids noise Mm. because we have some other noise that we can tune into. (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
I always said I was not ever going to play kids music in my house, which we don't normally. And I'm like, my kids are going to know who the Rolling Stones are. And like, they're going to know the yeah. good music. Like they know who my morning jacket is. Like, that's cool. <laughs> but <laughs> every once in a while, if I do put on some like kid stuff, like they do get really happy and it, it's yeah. a really helpful mood turn for everybody. <laughs> They really love pop. Pancake like robot. Poppiest pop, pop. And you're just like, okay, I guess. Yeah. I like how you're acting when I put this on. So I'm going to go ahead and listen to it, even though it makes me cringe. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Um, all right. What's the best, most recent book you've read? Um, Running Well Black by Alison Desir. Mm. I need to read that. I have not read that yet. Oh, yeah. Uh, I recommend. Yeah. Everybody needs to read that. Definitely. And if you call yourself a runner you got to read it. It's the, it's the side of things that has been um, made invisible to most of us yeah. as white people, you know? So it's good. Do you have any books that like inspired good for a girl? I know you wrote about a couple in the, in the, in there. Mary Carr and, um, Anne Lamott's writing mm, memoir essays. Yeah, me too. Um, Seabiscuit weirdly. Okay. <laughs> I think that that, I'm book. showing you all these um, Anne Lamott books I have right oh here. Oh my God, yes. I love Anne Lamott. She's so great. Um, I'm obsessed with her. Yeah, her unflinching approach to honesty and not afraid to make herself look bad mm. has been very impactful on me. Um, and then yeah, I think uh, Allison and, and I were writing our books at the same time. So I think that her bravery in telling her story and her desire to incorporate personal memoir with research and data. Like we just both had that same idea of how we wanted to approach our projects, but hers with a, a lens on race primarily and mine primarily on sex and gender. So and I was bolstered and influenced by being in good company mm. during that time. And then, um, oh, what's her name? Ann Patchett. Mm. I just adore Ann Patchett so much and I like really want to get invited to Parnassus books and speak and be in conversation with Ann Patchett but I don't think that's going to happen but that was my pie in the sky bookstore wish just speak it it'll happen <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure she's listening right now go go to whatever <laughs> office just like you did with Nike whoever needs to be talked to and say look I'm a good fit for this yeah I mean any of your listeners if anyone is from Nashville um, feel free to write an email to Parnassus Books yes. <laughs> requesting that I come. Yes. <laughs> that I, would be great. I Thanks. see this happening in your future, Lauren. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I usually don't ask this on this podcast, but since we've talked so much about parenting, do you have, um, I asked this on my other podcast, do you have like a, an adventure or a place that you've gone to with your family that you recommend? Well, for me, it's like the local the local simple basics like there's this pump track in the woods mm. maybe three miles from my house and it, it there's nothing that special there they can ride their bikes there but usually we just go and build stick forts and mm. um hang out and I think that like those kind of adventures like I use the trampoline parks and I pay the I pay the fees for the things I mean I do I do plenty of that but and they love it but that, like, just going out into nature and doing that in a low-key way and letting them kind of, like, create their own adventure is, is the best for me. I like that the most. 
Those damn trampoline parks. God. Get me Seriously. out of there. Like every <laughs> every birthday party my children are invited to is at a trampoline park. And I'm like, guess what, guys? You're never going to have to have a trampoline birthday party because you go to all of them. <laughs> it's true. Oh my if gosh. you live in a place with winter, too, and you have a winter birthday, it's just like, what are your options? And that is like the last place I want my kids to go. Like, I'm not paranoid about a lot of sickness with my kids, but like, I don't want the stomach bug in January and that's where you're getting it. (laughs) Oh, a hundred percent. And we got the stomach bug probably because of the trampoline center. Damn trampoline parks. Um, I think we have like three on the calendar in the next like three weeks. (laughs) Good luck. I know. Um, All right. Well, what's your last message to leave with our audience today? I would just say that um, I would really appreciate it if you picked up a copy of Good for a Girl. And if you're somebody that cares about sports um, or women's sports or women or understanding a perspective that isn't your own, that will help you understand your environment better and the people you love better. um, I feel confident recommending my book. And especially if you're like a, a man who is someone in the life of a young girl Mm. that could impact their life. You could really be a force for, of like safety. If you have an awareness of a lot of these issues that generally men haven't been given access to, to understand um, from a female perspective. And you'll probably find you have more in common with my story than you think you will. Can we get a Dave DeLong shot out? Shout out. Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> Dave DeLong, my high school coach. Yeah. So, did you like him in the story? Yes, I loved him so much. And <laughs> also my heart hurts for him because of the loss of one of his kids. But, you know, yeah. I just he seemed like such a supportive, amazing person in your life. He is a, just an incredible human who's impacted thousands of young people and just makes the effort to stay connected to them after they leave. Um, and, and his family, I mean, p- part of the magic of DeLong is the magic of his wife, Lisa and his, and his kids, um, you know, Jacob, Jessica and Joel. And, uh, and the, as a group, they created a, a safe haven for me when I was trying to figure out who I was in the world and how to navigate alcoholism in my home. And, um, I feel that he and his family provided a safe space and also a place where I could talk about the things I was going through. And they always helped me still realize and return to how loved I was in my home and by my family and helped me see the problems I was facing like more holistically. I appreciated that. I, I wish every kid could be so lucky to have a DeLong in their life. I love that. That's beautiful. It makes you, it actually too, I think you telling that story encourages us as adults to like be that person for someone else maybe not to that extreme but like that you can be so influential in a young kid's life regardless of what's going on in their own home yeah especially when you're not a parent and you don't have to take the things they say personally Mm -hmm. you can create a different kind of space for them to talk about things that they probably aren't talking to their parents about and I think that's just like you said it's a normal stage of life where they're pushing away but they desperately still need advice and love and to be heard. I've thought about being a mentor, but I can also just step up my game with, um, as a aunt and as a like neighbor (laughs) and a a fellow parent of kids in school. Gosh, that's so true. I need to be a better aunt 
forget about those <laughs> ones. Yeah. Like they're different. The relationship is so much different than with your own kids. Yeah. You get to be the cool aunt. Yes. And you can be the confidant. <laughs> mm-hmm. Lauren, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Lindsay. I really enjoyed our time. Thank you for your thoughtful questions and for highlighting my work. All right, friends, go pick up Good for a Girl, Lauren Fleshman's new book. Uh, You can find her, of course, on Instagram. She is Fleshman Flyer over there. You can find me. I am Lindsay Hine, 626 on Instagram, at Lindsay Hine on Twitter. And we've got a great Facebook group. I'll have another podcast with Lindsay Hine. Hey, go get yourself the best pillow ever. Go to lagoonsleep.com slash Lindsay and save 15% off the best pillow ever when you use the code Lindsay at checkout. Uh, Thanks for being here. Have a great day. We've got some great episodes coming up. We've got a new coaching series coming up as well. That'll be sponsored by VDOT, which I'm super excited about. That is the training platform I use. I'll share more about that in an upcoming episode. Uh, Enjoy the rest of your Friday. Have a great weekend and we'll see you next week on All Have Another.